Welcome to the Healthcare Policy Podcast. I'm the host, David Intracasso. During this podcast, we'll discuss the importance of functional status in improving care for the chronically ill, or more specifically, how a better care coordination can improve care quality, health status, and reduce health care costs. With me to discuss the topic is Dr. Gretchen Alkema. Welcome, Gretchen. Thank you so much, David. Appreciate it. As always, let me start with some brief background. As is well documented, healthcare use and costs are highly concentrated. That is, 5% of patients consume nearly 50% of healthcare costs. In Medicare, 5% of beneficiaries consume 43% of costs, 25% consume 85% of costs. The challenge, therefore, is how to better manage care for the chronically ill, and that means today particularly those with multiple comorbidities and with functional limitations. This is because in Medicare, beneficiaries with chronic conditions and functional limitations consume a disproportionate share of Medicare resources. Dr. Alchemist's bio is posted on the website, so I'll not provide it here. So with that, let's begin. Uh, Gretchen, let's start with uh, the basics. Can you please define uh, what functional limitations means? Certainly. When we talk about functional limitation, we're really talking about how people live every day and how they're able to address the really basic aspects of their life. So talk about things like uh, activities of daily living, those things like bathing, dressing, eating, transferring from, from a bed to a chair and being able to use the toilet, those really basic tasks. And functional limitation is defined as having and needing assistance uh, for a, to be able to accomplish at least one of those items that I listed. Another way we look at the challenge of functional limitation is people who struggle with kind of the next realm of daily activities, light housework, meal preparation, managing their money, being able to use the telephone, those other kind of next realm of basic activities, and people who have three or more difficulties and need assistance with, you know, with three or more of those items would be defined as having a functional limitation. Okay, thank you. Let's start, too, with a definition, and that is care coordination. What does that mean? Well, it's interesting. In many ways, it depends on who you speak to. Uh, the, the foundation right now is looking at the variety of ways of people defining care coordination, sometimes still called care management or case management out there in the world. But ultimately, it's about how do we bring the variety of providers together to create a single you know, organized plan of care for an individual and then being able to execute that plan of care effectively. Uh, most importantly, though, that that plan of care is based off of one's needs, values, and preferences. And how do you keep all those healthcare players on the same page so they're not cross-referencing each other in terms of things like treatments, healthcare decision-making, uh, you know, the challenges of someone going into the hospital but the primary care doctor not knowing about it, ordering multiple tests, all those challenges that have happen out there in a fragmented system. Care coordination is about putting kind of a wrap around the services so that uh, all the all the relevant players, including the older person and their families, are on the same page. And that could mean, obviously, care beyond clinical care, so psycho, psycho, excuse me, psychosocial supports. 
It absolutely would. You know, oftentimes in the medical realm, we think about care coordination as well. We just got to, all those providers are doctors or nurses or specialists. And the reality is, is that people who have functional challenges need a, a whole other realm of supports to help them live every day and makes, you know, the, the living with uh, health conditions more challenging if they are not able to get to the doctor uh, because they don't have transportation or they're having difficulty preparing nutritious meals, which means they have a challenge in taking their medications. So you have to look at what's the realm of provider supports, both medical and non-medical, to help people be able to live in the most independent fashion possible. All right, those are helpful definitions on background. So let me ask the obvious next question, and that is, this appears all very obvious. So what explains then the current lack of care coordination for Medicare patients with chronic conditions and with or without even functional limitations? Sure. And also another way to phrase the question is, what does Medicare and or Medicaid pay or not pay for? You know, that's actually, the last part's a great place to start because we, you know, we know that form follows funding uh, in this world of ours. And when we look at what Medicare currently pays for and doesn't pay for in the fee-for-service system, it generally does not pay for care coordination. Now, there are efforts right now to look at uh, addressing that uh, within a fee-for-service payment. There's some comments that are out right now to get feedback on that. But fundamentally, fee-for-service Medicare doesn't pay for a single provider to be responsible for the outcomes of care, the total outcomes of care for an individual. So each provider really is looking at their own body part or their own particular system. Um, and even in the, the, the supportive services world that may not receive Medicare payment, um, may receive Medicaid payment or private payment, they still are looking at the, the one thing that they're addressing, whether it be the, the transportation or the home-delivered meals, uh, you know, and, and the medical providers are looking at their body part the knees, the heart, you know, et cetera, and instead of looking at the total person because that's what they're, they're paid to do. And so, uh, you know, when you have someone with chronic health conditions and functional impairment, there's a lot going on with them clinically and functionally. And without looking at that total picture, it's easy to make uh, clinical decisions on a single body part that may not be best for the overall person or may have impact in other areas of that, uh, that older adult's functioning. And that can lead to, you know, real disruptions in that person's ability to live well every day and also lead to, you know, because of that lack of coordination of, of communication and care can lead to some really poor health outcomes in the long run as well. So what a concept, right? Whole person care. Yeah. Everybody, you know, the t all the body parts coming together. Let me ask then about uh, next exemplary models of care or care coordination for patients with chronic illness and functional limitations. And a paper noted or attached to um, this interview on the website, um, there are in that paper uh, that SCAN funded um, uh, six that are highlighted, six programs that are highlighted, three are in Massachusetts. Uh, that is the Guided Care Mass General Program, the Mass General and Mass General Physicians Organization Care Management Program, and the Commonwealth Care Alliance. What do these programs do or what, what do they have in common? Certainly, and you know, uh, you noted that several of them are from uh, the Northeast, which has certainly been a hotbed of innovation for many years in the healthcare realm. So it's not surprising. You know, the, the common thread across all of these models are a couple of different things. 
One is that there is face-to-face engagement, you know, with real people uh, talking to real older adults and their families. This isn't about a telephonic intervention or a disease management intervention that's just focusing, again, on a body part or a disease. It is about that that face-to-face engagement, at least at the beginning, to get to know that older person and their needs, to get to talk with them about what's really happening in the total plan of care, not just doing a kind of a pure clinical interview, but really taking that next step of looking at the functional assessment. How well are people doing in their living situation with their ability to move in and around their, their homes, their communities, be engaged uh, at, at, a, at a different level than we think about purely on the healthcare side. So when you have face-to-face engagement that includes a functional and health assessment, it's amazing the kind of information that you get about how people are really doing. Uh, you know, the, a home visit also really helps because you get to look underneath the cabinets for the medication as the opposed to just, you know, pulling a pharmacy record or, or talking with an older person about what they're taking. I mean, those simple mechanics really make a difference on understanding that total plan of care for people, which then leads to the creation of a care plan that's person-centered, taking into account their needs, values, and preferences in light of all this health and functional information, and really helping individuals' goals set about what's important to them. Uh, sometimes we can think about things in purely clinical realms of, you know, let's get the hemoglobin A1C under control and, you know, let's get this metric under control and let's make sure we have the flu shot. What might be really important to that older person is that they can walk out their door to the mailbox and get their mail on their own every day. And so we can think about what are the total system, you know, changes or interventions that might need to help that older person be able to achieve that functional outcome. But people will be more interested in being able to achieve that outcome as opposed to those peer measures if they can see all that information tied together. That's what these programs do. They really start at the person's needs and desires and preferences, knowing that they have complicating health and functional challenges and develop a, a really realistic plan of care to to execute their desires in a way that's meaningful to them. Um, part and parcel of that is helping put together a care team that uh, that is of that person's needs and choosing. So it might be the nurse, the social worker, and the doctor and the specialist. It might be a direct care worker. That's, that's a home care worker working in their home that can be relaying communication to the medical providers. It might include the, the home-delivered meals volunteer who's part of that check-in process a couple times a week. It most certainly needs to include the the family caregiver as deemed by that older person because that's usually someone who's helping that older person execute that plan on a moment-to-moment basis. So when we look at those four components, face-to-face contact, functional assessment, a, a meaningful care plan, and then a team who can really help that older person carry that out, that's what we see in common across these models. Let me then ask you specifically, what are some of the outcomes uh, these programs are demonstrating both relative to sort of clinical outcomes or measures and cost savings. You know, one of the things that I'd like uh, from the, the GRACE program in particular, I can say from the foundation's perspective, you know, we're, we're not in the business of building models from scratch. We're really in the business of taking good models that have shown some proven success and help disseminate them, um, particularly here in California. And what we did with the GRACE program is we, we brought that out to a very large medical group in Southern California who also has touch in other states and helped them be able to implement the GRACE model through basically their vulnerable population segment of, of their health plan, folks who they had identified having 
you know, multiple ER visits, multiple hospital visits, multiple medications, and, and they could see that there was an uncoordinated aspect uh, of care for folks who were continuing to cycle through high-cost services in a way that wasn't planned and, and wasn't working well for that uh, for them, either on a quality basis or a cost basis. Um, this medical group uh, implemented the GRACE model and within a six-month period of time saw a 31% reduction in emergency room services. That speaks volumes, particularly on the cost level, but also on the quality level, because um, it's not just about, you know, oh my goodness, people get concerned about, you know, care coordinations, meaning people don't have access to services. And I say, that's not true at all. What they have is they have access to the right services. And being in the emergency room can be one of the most unperson-centered experiences, uh, especially for a vulnerable older adult who, you know, gets rushed in, under the lights, poked and prodded, lots of tests, you know, an overwhelming experience that can last six to eight hours at best. And uh, and to have a 31% reduction in that kind of experience and having a much better organized plan of care, you know, just speaks volumes from both a, a quality and a cost experience. And that patient more than likely, or odds are, that they may be uh, cognitively impaired as well. That adds to the difficulty. I'll just note some other outcomes in my research. You noted, of course, fewer ED visits, but these interventions are showing higher patient satisfaction, lower service use otherwise, more use of evidence-based interventions, and lower mortality, of course, not, um, not easily dismissed. On the cost side, uh, these studies are showing uh, either cost neutrality or lower hospital costs offset by higher primary and chronic care costs. Um, savings are from, of course, lower service use, and as you know, fewer hospital ED stays and fewer nursing home uh, stay days. Let me ask then, specific to the SCAN Foundation, um, what, is, what would SCAN or is SCAN recommending relative to improve um, uh, Medicare services in this regard specifically, and or even uh, Medicaid as well? One of the things that I'm really heartened by in the, the recent announcement by the Center for Medicare and Medicaid Innovation in this next round of grants is that they really highlighted the populations that need to be considered in projects moving forward are, are vulnerable populations with chronic health conditions and, and the need for long-term services and supports, which is another way about, of saying uh, those people who have functional limitations, because that's what long-term services and supports ultimately addresses, is that daily functional aspect. And so to see Medicare taking that step of looking towards more demonstration activity in that realm, looking for models that help bridge the health side and the function side, is that's exactly the direction that Medicare needs to go. Uh, because I think creating, there's lots of different parts and pieces of, of bringing this, this work together. Um, Randy Brown from Mathematica and his team did a, a really nice review of the Medicare chronic care demonstrations and basically spoke about there's a lot of things that didn't work, but there are clearly some things that did. And of the things that did, they're all the items that I just described of, about the models of care that are articulated in the, the FEDER paper, FEDER Commissar paper that is, is posted with this podcast. You know, the face-to-face -face contact, the functional assessment, you know, having that care plan and having you know appropriate ongoing follow-up. Those are the kinds of models that need to have more explanation, you know, kind of explanation around them and, and an identification of how do you bring these configurations of pieces together to show both that the quality works and matters in people's lives, but also has an appropriate reduction in the cost utilization uh, of services um, in, in ways 
that uh, are meaningful for people, you know, those unplanned hospital visits, those ER visits, um, the, the appropriate use of, of specialists and primary care doctors in a way that uh, that really gets at the heart of, of people's needs and willing and ability to function well on a daily basis. Let me ask then, this is the stickiest question possibly, and we've talked around, and that is this issue about the duals. Mm-hmm. This would be uh, Medicare beneficiaries who are also uh, poor and that they qualify for Medicaid services, and we know these programs are run uh, to date uh, largely independently, if not wholly independently. So for those uh, patients who are both Medicare beneficiaries and Medicaid eligible or, or qualify for both programs, what can be done in that regard? And California, of course, has a huge, I'll note, of course, uh, dual demonstration about to begin. Right, right, and several other states are embarking on that, either with specific authority from uh, from the Duals Office, the, the uh, Medicare Medicaid Coordination Office. Uh, oh, and states have been doing this work for some time under other kind of policy platforms like special needs plans and Medicare and et cetera, other kinds, PACE model, those kinds of things. You know, there. When I think about the situation that low income, generally physically uh, vulnerable and potentially cognitively vulnerable older people and people with disabilities have when they have two programs that they have access to, Medicare generally in the acute care frame, Medicaid generally addressing the supportive services and, you know, a coverage backstop for Medicare. The coverage package that's available to people who have access to both of these programs, frankly, is better health care coverage than you and I have combined. And But the, the ability to meaningfully access both of those programs in an organized, seamless way for the individual is basically non-existent and is, is largely theoretical. So here we have it. We give people, uh, the, on paper, the best access to care that they could have, but basically take that away from them by not having any meaningful coordination is frankly is cruel. And so the idea about how can you appropriately bring those two programs together in an organized, seamless way at the consumer level so that they can have, again, uh, an appropriate assessment of their needs and an appropriate connection to the the range of services that would be uh, appropriate to address what they need is really the spirit of bringing together Medicare and Medicaid in these integration uh, models of care. And so, you know, when we look at the charge that's coming out of the, the duals office, it's about full boat integration, you know, acute primary rehab, behavioral health, and long-term services and supports. It's about bringing all those pieces together. So the fundamental glue in all of that has to be a solid care coordination model where the consumer has confidence that if they have a problem, they know who to call. They have kind of one phone number, one set of cards to to deal with to get access to care. Everybody on the care team has a meaningful way of accessing that person's information to have the most efficient pathway of getting the support that they need. You know, right now in fee-for-service Medicare and fee-for-service or even managed Medicaid, there's so many disjunctures and so many fragments that the person experiences of getting the care that they need that, that, frankly, they don't, and then end up with unmet needs, which oftentimes leads to ER visits and hospitalizations. Again, the most costly services in the system and the most, you know, distressing at the person's level. And so 
we can do a way better job than what we're doing. The most important challenge in all of this is to make sure that bringing Medicare and Medicaid together is not simply a budget exercise, but is particularly about improving the quality of care. And with lots of different test elements out there on on how to do this, I think with some creativity and and continued effort, we can get there. We can bring a a better quality of care to some of our most vulnerable individuals in this country. Let me just ask you about one other demo, uh, just to make note of it, and that's the Independence at Home demo. Can you uh, briefly describe what that's about? Sure. Uh, The Independence at Home demo is really about how do you provide in-home physician care to individuals who are so physically frail or cognitively impaired, uh, but generally have both the physical and and sometimes the the cognitive component to it, uh, that that them being able to meaningfully get out and get service is, is frankly impossible or really, really challenging for themselves and their family caregivers. So, it is about kind of bringing the healthcare provider into the home and looking at by doing that, does that also have a reduction in some of the high cost utilization? I mean, one of the things that I think is really interesting from that, from some of the background work uh, that led up to that demo, is the identification that if individuals have an ambulance ride from the home to the hospital for things other than, say, a heart attack, which obviously an ambulance ride would be appropriate. Then, um, but if you have someone who's uh, there's a challenge in getting that person to the hospital or to a healthcare provider, and an ambulance level service is needed, that that's an indication that something's broken down in the support uh, in that home, uh, and so that maybe someone's fallen and that the caregiver can't get him, you know, her husband up. Um, maybe that you know it's just so much of a struggle to be able to get that person to a healthcare provider, and that they're not getting the kind of quality care that they need. That's a really interesting indication of kind of of the challenge or the functional breakdown uh, of that person and the supports around that person, and can really be an interesting identifier of being able to you know address people's needs in in places where functional assessments really don't exist at this point. And so, you know, there's a lot of opportunity for us to start driving in on that function equation, get a lot better information about how people are really doing every day, being able to create a, a different and more uh, tailored set of services around that person that really meets their needs and likely has um, a lower cost on the back end. Well, great. Let me just uh, conclude this with uh, this question. We were talking uh, so far, are talking so far more or less top-down. Let me ask more of a bottom-up question. Sure. So you're the child of a parent or parents, uh, say they're in their uh, 80s, um, uh, they're continuing to um, are becoming increasingly more frail. Um, they're obviously Medicare beneficiaries. They're, let's just say in this example, not also Medicaid beneficiaries. You're, again, a, a, a child of one of these, um, of, a, of a parent in this condition. What, what sort of general advice would you give or what should they expect or look for to try to provide optimum care? And that means, in this instance, beyond however many comorbidities they have, they do have uh, however many number of functional limitations. When it comes to, you know, really starting at that person first level, which is what you're speaking about, and, and you're talking about starting really at that caregiver level, the, the family member who's seeing changes happen with mom and dad per, per se and, and looking at, okay, what can I do first? I honestly would say that the very first place to start is to begin to have those conversations with that older person and other family members and not the kind of 
panicked, oh my God, what are we going to do with mom conversation? Because that just leads to a whole fear pathway. And that's oftentimes what happens, particularly in crisis states. Um, But one of the things that we've done at the foundation is to develop a a series of, of products that family members and individuals can use to start looking at how can I start having those conversations with families. And this really can be done at any point in time in the in the life cycle. And the conversation starts off with what's important to me every day in my living? How do I want to think about my, my daily living in a way that if I have functional challenges, either now or in the future, what are the things that are most important to me? Who do I want to be able to help me make those decisions in my care? Who who can I kind of help be that, that arbiter of discussion of really complex medical dialogue so that I can figure out what's best for me to get to my needs, values, and preferences for care? So that it's not about specific medical tests or medical interventions, but more of values frame of what's most important to me as I move forward in in this new phase of my life. And that caregivers can start having those conversations with mom and dad. They can start having those conversations with themselves and, and their family members, you know, down the generational pathway. But having that perspective of what's most important to me and my family leads to being able to go into those physician offices, whether they're part of integrated or care coordinated models or not, and be able to be a better advocate for you know what it is that somebody wants at the end of the story, um, either in their own in, in the medical decision office right then and there, or at the end of the story of of needing care more towards the end of life. But it starts really with the person and their family in those conversations, and we have a number of tools on our website to help prompt those conversations and then bring them to the conversations with one's doctor to start getting the kinds of communication happening that gets to this different orientation of care. So the key word here would be proactive. It is it is a more proactive response, and we're already seeing that with consumers today. You know, I mean, it's, every day it's an exponential use of the web to look up, you know, medical questions, to look up tests and procedures. My God, there's YouTube videos on, on surgery. I mean, people are already utilizing a proactive response um, that is really awesome. And I think what we wanted to add to the equation from the foundation's perspective is how to structure a communication set within families and with people and their providers that leads to that that productive engagement that's not just about rooted in fear of, oh my gosh, what are we going to do, but says, here's who I am. Here's what's important to me. Now let's structure a plan of care that's based on those needs, values, and preferences because I've already thought about it and I've already had that conversation with, with my daughter, with my son, with my husband, et cetera. Well, great, Gretchen. We're at our, sadly, our time boundaries, so I thank you for your comments. Uh, very helpful. And I hope we can come back and revisit this subject after, uh, with any luck, we have made progress in the topic. That would be great. And I just want to say thank you for raising the visibility of function in this dialogue, which can very easily punt to chronic condition only. And, you know, function's the way we live, and that's what really matters to people on a daily basis. Okay. Thank you again, Gretchen. Thanks. Bye-bye.